Welcome back to Practical Philanthropy with me, Lynn Tomlinson, Head of Impact at Casano of Capital. In this podcast, we bring you the voices of really inspirational people who are toiling valiantly to solve environmental and social challenges that are often complex, but always significantly underfunded. In episode five, we discuss one of the biggest gaps in funding I've seen. Less than half a percent of philanthropy globally goes to supporting our oceans. That's despite them having absorbed 90% of global heating to date and providing every other breath we take. So let's have a deep dive into the blue and talk to Jasper Smith about his efforts to galvanise more money into saving our oceans. Right, let's get started. Um, Okay, so... So we're here in our lovely recording studio in the Schroeder's um, mothership. And Jasper, thank you for joining me on Practical Philanthropy. I had an absolute nightmare researching you. (laughs) I'll tell you why, because you're a sculptor, media and tech entrepreneur, philanthropist, sustainable investor, venture capitalist, explorer, mountain climber, documentary maker, chairman of Arcs and Sustainable Brands and, and founder of Father Capital. And you're you're basically what I would call an all-in philanthropist, like this is your your life by the sounds of it. And um and so we could talk to you about so much, but I think particularly for for our audience where we have around 40% of our clients are self-made people. So they're people who mm. like you have grown a business and exited it. I think what would be really interesting for them is to hear about that journey from entrepreneur to philanthropist. And I know you're doing other stuff, which we'll come on to. Yeah. And I suspect that all of the other wonderful stuff you do as well sort of will probably bleed out into the, the philanthropy conversation. So let's start with that. Brilliant. Oh, Lynn, thanks for having me. It's great, great to be here. And uh, your intro made me sound like a magpie, which I think is probably <laughs> pretty accurate. And you know, and I think a, a lot of entrepreneurs find it very difficult to say no. That's how quite a lot of businesses mm. are started because mm. you just, you know, you're quite creative yeah. and you get bombarded by ideas. And I think that's probably, you know, the best thing for me, mm. been the best thing for me. But mm. it's also been the hardest thing yeah. to manage. And so you, you know, I guess my journey started in tech. I mm. was. Um, uh, or my corporate journey started in tech, and I I was very lucky to be right at the beginning of Sky. I think mm. it was the second or third employee yeah. in Sky. Okay, um, and so I was lucky to be able to build teams under mm. me, learn about technology really mm. early on. Mm. All this emerging technology is gradually we shifted from analog to digital, and you can begin to see these sort of business revolutions. Um, and that was, you know, I, I guess. You know, we then had the games industry that came to life as a yeah. result of, of that transition. And I was very lucky. I built mm. a big games business. Yeah. Uh, we scaled that pretty much globally. Mm. Mm. Um, and, you know, someone knocked on the door one day and <laughs> said, oh, I quite fancy that. And so we we sold that in 2001 just before the market crashed. Okay. So that was a, a bit of a coup. Yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I, I, you know, I think like a lot of people that build a business mm. and, you sell it and you have these moments of euphoria and you suddenly, I remember waking up thinking, you know, there's, there's almost nothing I can't do that Mm. I could conceive of doing um, now. And so there was this (laughs) sort of two hour window at about four o'clock in the morning (laughs) after we had signed. And, but pretty quickly that wears off and then you're Mm. sort of left with what next and do you Mm. start other businesses and, uh, or do you, or do you start doing something else Mm. with your life? And I think in my 
you know, my journey was to try and do mm. both in yeah. parallel. Mm. Fantastic. And that led to the creation of Barla Capital and then Arxon on the sustainable brands and the sustainable yachting business, effectively. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I don't think there's any journey that mm. any of us go on that's, you know, mm. completely linear. So <laughs> I think, you know, my, I guess Barla Capital came out of sort of acting as an investor being mm. a family office. Yeah. So, you know, I put some of the capital I'd yeah. made into, <clears throat> into making um, some investments realized I was pretty bad at doing them on my own <laughs> and gradually built a team around uh, around yeah. me to do that. Yeah. And then we professionalized that and and then started, mm. you know, taking other investors' money and yeah. co-investing that with, with my capital. Mm. And um, and that's, you know, that's that's been really interesting because we've, we've sort of shifted from a model when I started investing mm. that was purely about capital return yeah. to a model that's, far more about mm. impact um, as well as capital return. Yeah. And this whole blended finance movement, if mm. you like, that's sort yeah. of grown up over the last 10 years, yeah. largely driven by um, some of the work the UN have done yes. uh, and things like that has, has, has been really powerful, certainly for, for, for me, certainly for, for Vala Capital. And, mm. I, you know, I think we look at capital now as, as responsible money. Yeah. And that it needs to have a task, mm. and it's and the task is obviously to build great businesses yeah. that can be sustainable. Yeah, but it's to invest in projects and ideas mm. that that uh, you know can have systemic change yeah. in, in in different sectors and industries. So that's a great privilege. Yes, yeah, that <laughs> well, sounds wonderful. And it's it's really interesting you talk about the investment piece because getting people to understand. <laughs> that um, what they do with their investments affects things like climate change and oceans, which we're going to come on and talk about, is a really, a really important point because people at the moment are so focused on all the narrative is, or is around, you know, individual actions that people should be taking. Mm. And the reality is, is that, you know, we can all you know, go to plant-based diets, fly less, do whatever, but if we keep pumping money into fossil fuels through mm. the banking sector etc <clears throat> we um you know it's it's all pointless and there was some brilliant research actually that's been done which says that if you have twelve and a half thousand pounds in barclays that's the equivalent of 14 return flights from london to rome is it really wow yes. That's, that's a... twelve and a half thousand pounds. <laughs> wow! And you're like, okay, right? How much money have I got in my... So, how do you make capital yeah, responsible? Exactly. Yeah. And and and, but just how big that shift could be if if it is, mm. you know. So, mm. I think it's a really important area, and we're obviously seeing that within our mm. own client base, people like you, sort of really thinking mm. about all the assets that they have, not just um, not just thinking about philanthropy, which we're going to come on to next, um, but also your investments, your business, mm. Mm. families who've got landed estates, thinking about rewilding all those mm. sorts of things so it's mm. a really it's an amazing shift that we're seeing mm. happening so yeah i think the energy around it is mm. is is palpable mm. and really attractive yeah. isn't it you know yeah. i think about how my kids treat me and you know what they what they request that we do yes. and things like that and i think that being purpose driven around mm. an action or a set of actions or how you treat your capital mm. begins to feel very appropriate you know, and it may didn't maybe it didn't feel yeah. that appropriate ten years ago. Yeah. So that shift, I think, is very you know yeah. really powerful. Well, it's interesting you mentioned children because um, 
his name escapes me now, but the chap who set up the Energy Coalition mm. um, said that his 17-year-old locked him in a room for a weekend and said, you've got to sort your life out and do something with your life because he'd been selling credit cards and soap. <laughs> and then he set up the Energy Coalition because, you know, well, some was really concerned about climate change. She was embarrassed at school, probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> come on, Dad. Yeah, so, and so have you found that influence come through from your children? Was yeah, it I mean, I you? think, it, you know, obviously our journey has been very much around sort of ocean philanthropy mm. and that's driven in part by my passion mm. but but inspired very much by the kids yeah. you know growing up and and have, sharing that passion and, yeah. and wanting to you know push me to do more yeah. so i think they're always an influence on mm. me yeah exactly and so can i talk about the decision to be public so you're here chatting away to me so mm. it's very un-british to be public with your philanthropy <clears throat> um but it's really important that people are because it normalizes giving and you know you can't be what you can't mm. see all those sorts mm. of things and people can look you know aspire to to be philanthropists can you and i think the reason that more people aren't is this concern around criticism because mm. people who you know, try and do good things often quite get, get shot, shot, shot down by the media sometimes. Mm, mm. Have you experienced anything like that? Or was that a worry for you? Um, a, a little, but I guess the way we a- approach philanthropy is really as, as a conduit to capital. Mm, yeah. So it's sort of, we're, you know, I mean, it sounds very boring, but we're, we're very interested in how money flows mm. and how to raise money and how to deploy yeah. capital. So we our philanthropy is almost like venture philanthropy, mm-hmm. um, and so we act we act like a uh, like a VC. And so my decision to be public was, I don't think it was ever an option really, mm. because to build yeah. it, if you think of it as a business, mm. and you think of philanthropy as a business, because it mm. it needs to be for it to become sustainable, yeah. um, it, you have to be public. You know, yeah. it's a bit like being the public, you know, mm. CEO of a public facing company yeah. or a private company. And I think the next generation are doing things slightly differently and there's there's calls from some of them to have more people being public which is really interesting so so we've mentioned the oceans a few times there mm. um can we talk specifically about them then and that makes up the vast majority of of your philanthropy mm. in terms of the money that you actually give away um but despite the oceans i think they provide something ridiculous like 80 percent of the air we breathe so there's mm. a great campaign called the sea we breathe which i love and 40 percent of the world's population live in coastal regions um, and if it were an economy, it would be the seventh largest in the world. So it, it's extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, every stat mm. is extraordinary, yeah, isn't it? it feeds exactly. a billion and a half people yeah, a day, exactly. as you said. You know, every yeah. second breath you take is, yeah. is you know, um, but it gets yeah, but it gets half a percent, isn't it, of, of, um, of funding? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think if you it, you look at it, it's our, you know, obviously the planet's largest ecosystem mm. supports all life on Earth. It yeah. supports you know hundreds of thousands of species it's uh, you know w- without a healthy ocean there is no planet and so mm-hmm. i guess we look at it as a sort of a foundation uh, ecosystem that is absolutely core mm-hmm. to the survival of hu- humankind yep. and when you look at it in those terms you then look at from a philanthropic point of view how much capital it gets allocated mm-hmm collectively so this is the global ocean yes <laughs> every drop is connected to the next one the global ocean gets less than 0.5 percent mm. of wow. global philanthropic mm. capital um and uh, you know whichever way you look at it that's you know horrifying <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know and, uh, and astounding yeah. because you know as our largest ecosystem it should at least be getting mm. 
a larger share of the philanthropy that's put into environmental mm. yeah. causes. And it should probably be getting a much larger share of philanthropy generally. Yeah. Uh, and what's mad is, you know, more goes into cat conservation mm. and looking after cats than goes into the ocean. <laughs> and there are all these stats about, you know, we spend four times more on washing powder mm. than we do yeah. on conserving the ocean. You know, yeah. there's lots of these things. And why do you think people aren't funding it? Is it because, I mean, it's called the Blue Planet for a reason. It's... It's massive. It's so complex. Mm. Do you think people just don't know where to start? Yeah, I think there's there's, a, there's lots of reasons, but I think there's a complexity to the ocean that mm. people um, struggle with because a lot of it is quite scientific mm. and and quite research led, yes. and you know, and, and and therefore it's quite academic. Mm. And so decoding some yeah. of those problems feels quite you know quite a burden mm. for people. So I think there's 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 that side. It's not easy to interpret the issues. The second thing is. You know, fish don't look like mm. polar bears or mm. pandas. <laughs> and so it's quite hard, you know, unless you can find Nemo or something <laughs> yes. like that. You know, there's, yeah. there's, there's no sort of beautiful face mm. of the ocean other than maybe a whale and a dolphin, yeah. but they're used so much that mm. we've become sort of desensitized to, to mm. seeing those images. Um, and I, you know, I think if you, if, if you think about the ocean collectively, what you end up with is trying to, trying to create a, a lexicon that enables people to interpret it mm. very quickly. And so our our view was that there was no central point where a human being could donate to the global ocean. Yeah. So what we ended up with was, you know, there are a multitude of great organisations doing great work around the world, yeah. but they work in competition with mm. each other. And they're all, um, as you know, given how hard they've had to work to get their capital, they're all quite proprietary, you know, yeah. proprietorial about the yeah. capital that they've got access to through foundations or high net worths or whatever. And so we spent a couple of years trying to align uh, 60 or 70 of those mm -hmm. major charities around the world so that, you know, we now have um, organisations in 27 countries, mm -hmm. several hundred projects, and they're all um, backable through a single mm -hmm. donation. Um, so... I guess what we wanted to do was was create a mutual fund mm. for for ocean conservation, yep. um, and and so that's that's where ten percent for the ocean yeah. came from. That's brilliant. Well, can we talk about the strategy of that? Because mm. um, one of the things, well, one of the reasons why I I um, decided to do this podcast is because I see people doing brilliant work all the time who really understand the sector and have mm. you know got staff with brilliant expertise like you have on your advisory board etc mm. and then you've got people new to the sector who really want to understand that and there's a lot of money wasted because people are going through the same journey the same pain <coughs> the same failures you know trying to work out what actually works where's the where's mm. the money going mm. where can my my money actually make a difference so um so that collaboration piece is is really interesting um could you just talk us through the sort of strategy then the sort of broad strategy of 10 percent for the ocean yeah sure so we we very um made a very conscious decision that we didn't want to be um, cause-based. So mm -hmm. we didn't want to say we're just about coral or yeah. we're just about whales. Or... Yeah. So we wanted to be very clear that we were just about the money, mm. you know. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> show us the money. Um, because there's something very pure about money. People get mm. it. People yeah. understand, you know, how it works. And, and, and it's relatively straightforward to be able to describe the things I described earlier about the crisis in ocean funding, yeah. about a mutual fund for the ocean, mm -hmm. And that a single donation can back, mm. you know, hundreds of projects mm. um, and create unity amongst a, a whole raft of disparate organisations yeah. that may have otherwise felt they were in mm. competition. 
And you can achieve that by bringing new money, mm. not by competing for yes. the old sources of money. So mm. this was really a retail-led okay. play. Mm. So I guess that's the core pillar of it is it's a, a real retail play to be able to amplify mm. um, the message of the ocean to yeah. as many people as possible mm. so that the, the overall quantum of cash mm. goes in that goes yeah. into it is larger. And then in terms of the deployment strategy, I mentioned we work a little mm. bit like a like a VC yeah. fund. Yeah. And um, you know, that means we have an investment committee and that investment committee invests around four mandates mm. and, and the mandates are either um, you know, education uh, focused mm. initiatives, which is obviously very broad. Yeah. We're, uh, you know, an example of a project that we might do there is a uh, a major feature documentary that mm. we're doing with mm. with David Attenborough mm. um, at the moment, which would be, yeah. you know, very cool <laughs> when that comes out. Um, we then invest around research um, mm. and and uh, infrastructure, and you know, probably the best examples of of research would be. Um, some of the work that we do with the mm. National Oceanographic yeah. Centre uh, in Southampton. So they obviously run all of the UK's research fleets, yeah. but they also yeah, control pretty much all of the major science programs yeah. that the UK does okay. uh, in Antarctica or the Arctic mm. or any, in, the, in the deep ocean. And working with groups like that, we've done some really fascinating work on you know helping them um, work out how blue carbon credits mm, might work. Yeah. You know, what is the yeah. standard? Because yeah. at the moment it's just plant yeah. some kelp and yes, yeah. that works. So, yeah. you know, what is the framework mm. that, that, that would work around that? And we've also helped them with strategies around how they might mm. increase their funding and strategies around, um, you know, how they might, uh, you know, grow their retail bases yeah. and, and things like that. And then specifically we've funded mm. a couple of um, small research projects that yeah. they've done using ROVs and things. So the... So the research piece is really aimed at either sort of, you know, policy change mm. through things like set frameworks and, yeah. and work out, um, you know, what the right approach might be through to research projects where the specific outcome might mm. be species identification yeah. mm -hmm. or, um, you know, surveys of a, mm. of a particular area. Um, we then, then back infrastructure projects. So infrastructure traditionally in... Mm in our world is is yeah. you know wind farms and mm -hmm. things like that so we're not talking about that we're there's there's a has been a real shortage of of marine infrastructure for for right. scientists to go mm -hmm. to see and do do work yeah. and so the you know the UK has two ships mm -hmm. um you know the states has i think seven mm -hmm. so you know <laughs> you think about it in worldwide terms yeah. that's very few so we set up a platform that enabled anybody who owned a boat, fishermen, mm, yeah. commercial operators, private operators, to be able to put those vessels into a into a platform. Yeah. And it's sort of like Tinder for, mm. for <laughs> Tinder for boat owners and marine scientists. And they have a great Brilliant. time. <laughs> uh, so those types of projects which which yeah. again are aimed at yeah. uh, partly educational but partly providing the platform mm. uh, for research. And then the last one is funding uh, projects that, you know, where, um, you know, we believe that we can significantly help with conservation. Yeah. Um, and a good example there may be like the Coral Reef Alliance yes. in the States that yeah. we, we provide quite a lot of capital to. Um, and they've done this wonderful work on figuring out how corals can become, um, you know, immune, not immune, but they can mm. become more resilient right. to climate change. Yeah. Um, and given the extent of the, you know the problem with the you know certainly the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah. Um, those sort of regenerative type mm. uh, initiatives 
it can be transformational, yeah. very hard to do, but yeah. I think they're you know, certainly one of the leading organisations in the world doing it. So, really yeah, that's a, hopefully that gives you a sort of a broad brushstroke. Well, so I would love to go to the ocean because I don't think we can um, not address the ocean. Take us to the ocean, Christiana. Take us to the ocean. So we have uh, from Citizens Climate Lobby in Sacramento, um, we have a great question. We hear a lot of talk about planting trees to sequester carbon, but most of our planet is covered by ocean and the ocean is absorbing most of the heat. So should we be doing more to plant and restore seaweeds, seagrasses and mangroves? That's the question to which the answer is absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but just, just to put a few numbers onto that question, we do know that 70% of the Earth's surface is water, is the ocean. And, and, we, and as, uh, as, as the uh, listener says, we tend to focus only on land, which means we're focusing only on 30% of our surface. So 70% is ocean. And the ocean has been absorbing at least 90% of the warming that has occurred in recent decades. So can you imagine if we have the temperatures that we have right now, highest temperatures in over 100,000 years, what would, what, I mean, we would be literally frying here on the surface of the earth if we didn't have the ocean that has been absorbing 90% of the temperature produced by greenhouse gases. Now, the question is, of course, how much more? How much more of a buffer role can the oceans play? And the answer to that is not much more. So oceans really play a very, very important part in protecting us from ourselves, basically, protecting us from ourselves. And if we look at what grows in oceans, we could actually use the ocean to absorb 21% uh, more or less, but let's say 20% of the emissions needed to get us to 1.5. How would that be done? Exactly as the listener says, by restoring, protecting, and managing coastal and marine ecosystems that includes mangroves, seagrasses, salt marshes, macroalgae, reefs, because they all have an ability to sequester and store carbon. Um, and, the, and also, in fact, as though that were not enough, to also improve coastal resilience and contribute to adaptation. So here we are, oceans that are absorbing heat, can absorb carbon, and can improve our adaptation capacity. It is unbelievable that we tend to not focus on the ocean. And, and here's a little personal story. Many, many years ago, while I was still at the UN, someone came up to me and I wish I knew who it was. And if, if there's a listener who did this for me, I would really love to know. Someone came up to me after some public speech about climate change and said, Christiana, you never talk about the ocean. And this person gave me a little blue marble. And the person said, carry this with you so that you remember the oceans. And I still have that little blue marble. It comes with me every time I have it in my 
in my computer case. And it is such a, such a beautiful reminder constantly that the oceans, oh my gosh, the oceans are such a friend and such an ally. And we have ignored them basically up until now. So there is some hard graft there in the sort of policy <coughs> advocacy space, which is, um, and then there's, is there the joy in the the species and the nature conservation? Because one of my previous guests said it can be quite bleak funding in climate, and this is the same, you know, mm. the scale of the challenge is massive. Mm. And so funding something that brings you joy just gives you that resilience and boost. So don't don't worry about being strategic about it because we need both both sources of funding. Yeah, I think that's I think that's spot on. And I think by focusing on the money and the money flow and deploying capital through a you know through an investment process, a traditional investment mm. process, I think you've got quite a lot of discipline in that, mm. which is which is really good. And the, the discipline enables you to sort of, in a sense, embrace the sort of you know how mundane some of mm some of it might seem yes. right so you know when the un published a document on you know on policy mm. it's not the most gripping <laughs> read um but it's an it's yeah. essential that yes. somebody decodes it into exactly. a language mm. that you and i or certainly i anyway can, <laughs> can get get my head around and 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 sort of work out whether we back but i just i love the idea of um just elevating the ocean message to mm. these simple yeah. Uh, these simple sound bites, if you like, yeah. you know, of you know every second breath you take yes. of you know yeah. all of climate change or all of the excess heat we've mm. created so far has been absorbed yeah. by you know by the ocean, and so you you end up with these sort of data points. And once you talk about those data points, it's very hard for somebody to go, well, I don't buy that, or I don't, yeah. or I don't care, or or whatever. And once once you've got someone to that point. Mm. You can get the whole system to work yeah. because you can you can collect more capital into the top, yeah. and then you can deploy it to actually the people who are on the ground, who do this tremendous work. Who, who you know, in some cases have mm. extraordinary fundraising skills, but yeah. quite often they're much better focused on you know doing yeah. you know doing the work that they they set out to do. Yeah, there's a really um, <clears throat> brilliant example of of reports that come out that are massive but just so important. So detox development from the World Bank came out, I think it was last week, um, and it's calling for reform of subsidies, which are basically killing <coughs> killing the planet. So fossil fuel subsidies, agriculture, fishing, um, governments actually, so direct government expenditure is totals about 1.25 trillion per annum. Wow. And just what you could actually do with that money if you completely reform <coughs> those subsidies because... That, that's so much money going into creating a problem that philanthropy is trying to solve mm. and you'll know the imbalance mm. in those numbers and mm. the actual the actual subsidy when you take into account indirect is something like eight trillion it's horrendous when you read it mm. Mm. and it's that point about a, a report that's based on research and can be extraordinarily boring for somebody but mm. to then take that and think well what do we do now as as philanthropy how do we mm. interact with that report and mm. what can we fund and mm. things like that do anything do anything around marine protection and the the people you're funding in the UK does that all that research sort of feed into mm. marine protection yeah i think what one of the most heartening things i think about mm. the ocean is an ocean conservation is how quickly it can rebound yeah. um, so if you put a, a marine protected area in place and you look after that marine protected mm. area within an ex 
a, a tiny amount of time, mm. you know, in comparison, mm. you know, yeah. within a year or two, yeah. the regeneration of that area is is extraordinary. You know, kelp grows obviously, you know, at its peak a couple of feet a day in some cases. Yeah. So, you know, the kelp grows, <laughs> the fish come back. You know, fish breeding accelerates and becomes mm. bigger. You know, becomes uh, you know, so the fish stocks go up significantly. Yeah. And the fact that you can have such powerful regenerative activity within mm. a couple of years is is one of the most hopeful things yeah. I think on the, on the planet. Yeah. And so you look at how you know Sylvia Earle, for instance, mm. has done extraordinary work with her foundation mm. in the states, creating I think fifteen different marine protected mm. areas now. The UK has got a whole area, a whole series of places mm. that have been designated for marine protected areas. Mm. The, the problem has been how to police those yes. marine protected mm. areas. And to some degree, you know, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of sort of um, pushback from mm. community, some some mm. community, yes, fishing communities, course, yeah. and things like that about where they're placed and how they're managed. Mm. Uh, so th- it's not perfect, but yeah. I uh, I think absolutely, it's one of the, it's one of the great hope stories of <laughs> yeah. the ocean is that you can you know see these profound changes. I wanted to take a moment to reflect on something really important Jasper has raised here about just how fast nature recuperates when we quote, leave it be. And there's a really brilliant case study of this and philanthropy in action from almost a decade ago when the Prince Albert of Monaco Foundation were advised that there were literally no more fish in the sea. No more bluefin tuna in the med within two years to be precise. So to try and solve that issue, they tried to get the species added to the red list, which would have made fishing illegal. But this failed, unsurprisingly, due to lobbying by companies and countries who had vested interests in continuing to overfish. But fortunately, the media picked this up and you can see why it's a great headline grabber. And because of that media engagement and the efforts of the foundation, the EU implemented restrictive fishing practices. So this joint effort between philanthropy and government meant that ultimately the population of fish recovered. and Within a few years, people could go back to fishing again. And this is a really great example to me of why marine protected areas are so important. But what's equally important as we do this is that we make sure the people affected by those areas, such as small local fishing communities, are supported. And we must not rest on our laurels. Despite this great success, over 87% of fish are overfished. And the Blue Marine Foundation has highlighted that a similar fate awaits the yellowfin tuna if the percentage of catches is not sustainably reduced. But hopefully the blueprint we now have, thanks to the Prince Albert of Monaco Foundation, can be leveraged to ensure that yellowfin tuna are replenished and restored while supporting the affected fishing communities in the Indian Ocean. Well, exactly, and there's been a UN... um a treaty was signed called the High Seas Treaty, which is, I mean, it's very ambitious. It's to protect 30% of the oceans by 2030. Mm. So we've got about 70 odd months to do that. And it was so it was signed, I think, you know, in the last couple of weeks. And um, we're currently at 1%, I believe. Yeah. So, um, and now every country's got to ratify that and put that into law by 2025. Yeah, and I think the BBNJ initiative, I think it's, it, it, you know, it's taken years and years and years. I mean, it started in 2016 or 2017, the negotiations yes, around yeah. this. So it's been a long time coming. It's fantastic that it's been done. 
Of course, the issue is because it's beyond mm. anybody's jurisdiction, yes. it's also very hard to police, mm. you know. Yeah. So there is, you know, the only way of policing it is to essentially use um, satellites mm -hmm. to track, yeah. you know, dark vessels and things yeah. like that. But actually that's pretty tri tricky mm. to do, you know. Mm. Uh, it's, it's pretty unreliable. I mean, we're beginning to see AI systems mm. come in that can scan images very yeah. quickly and figure out, you know, what's going on. But, I, I, you know, ultimately what, what would be wonderful is to mm. see all of these MPAs yeah. created mm. and then to see um, technology being used to, to police them yeah. in the best possible way. And obviously we've got, you know, things like deep sea mining to worry about. Yes, yeah, so um, I did sign the petition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, on the one hand, there is an extraordinary volume of, yes. of uh, valuable materials mm. at the bottom of the ocean. You know, by picking them up, you mm. you know you you create absolute chaos, yeah, and I know. Uh, you just... know it, it would take us back. Yeah, you know, it would really unwind any mm. good that's being done. Can I talk to you about something that really winds me up? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the media and your background in media. So I've yeah. got a big bee in my bonnet about this at the moment. So, um, and it's really topical because. Just Stop Oil were at the Ashes last night and you might, you probably won't, won't have seen it, but Piers Morgan was ranting at this poor Just Stop mm. Oil person mm. who'd gone on to try and speak to him mm. and say, look, we, we need to tell our story. We need the media to tell the story. Mm. And you haven't been telling the story. You've been ignoring floods in Pakistan where mm. 33 million people were, you know, displaced. You've got five, five million people, <clears throat> some of them children or half of them children who are still drinking contaminated water <clears throat> because that completely destroyed the water system and the narrative from the media is going green's going to cost you xyz so how they cover things and what they cover is is a real challenge mm. and i just wondered with your media background if you're funding outside of the big david attenborough piece you know which you could we'd love you to tell us about um some more but you know media has always worked on being trying to be sensationalist mm. you know because mm. you you're trying to create you know, two polar opposites yeah. and and play the arbitrage mm. in the middle. So we've created a media system that is based on manipulation mm. anyway mm. and and encouraged it in a sense. So I, you can't blame the editors in a sense for mm. trying to create the chaos, right, because that's, that's how they sell mm. papers and sell ads, yeah. right? And it's a fundamentally media is a business about subscriptions and advertising mm. yeah. and you need your ads to, you know, you need your your ad avails to go up and mm. your ad rates to go up and you need your subscriptions to stay loyal mm. so that your churn rate's not, you know, yeah. so, so that you're, you're safe. And so if you, if you look at media in that context, you begin to see why they play the games. And, and it, it, you know, if you bring it back to climate change, it, I, I, the most sensationalist thing that media can do is deny climate mm. change is there <laughs> yeah. and, and let the chaos mm. breed. And you have people like Piers Morgan who's, you know, very vocal and very mm. anti mm. any sort of conservation movements yeah. and things like that. And so it's natural for the media to want mm. to pick up on that mm. and go, look, 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 yeah. look, we'll be fine. My my view is every journalist I know, every media person I know mm. um, is, you know, passionately supportive of, mm. uh, you know, climate change mitigation, yeah. changing strategies uh, and, and, you know, shifting the dialogue. Mm. But I agree with you. It's, it's very, you know, it's a it's a really confrontational space mm. at the moment. It's very difficult for yep. 
protest groups to feel safe in yeah. in the media world you know so they put their head up and get shot down yeah. they're generally very young people mm. so they're you know our kids and yeah. things who are like yeah. let's go let's go let's yeah. try and do something so yeah i i think it's it's um it's really unfortunate it's mm. very you know it's very unfair mm. um and what we what we do need to do is try and push the these organizations in a sense to 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 play the game a little bit better yes and to become mm. better media organizations mm. themselves and I, you know so i can't remember who it was i think it was yvonne kushnard who was the ceo of patagonia mm. and he said uh, this is like 20 years ago he said you know to be brilliant now as an mm. organization you've got to be a media company mm. so you're irrespective of what you make right. or yeah. sell mm. your primary job is to be a media company mm. and i i think on the climate change side of things mm. that's what we need to yeah. We need to think yeah. like a media company, and that's really where ten percent came from. It's like think like a camp, think of it like a campaign. campaign. Yeah, you know, so put a campaign siege mentality mm. into it, <laughs> make it really bite sized, really yeah. simple for people mm. to get, get people immersed, and then mm. you know, and then things start to happen. But I, I share your frustration, mm. and and um, you, you know, I mean, obviously some some papers are better than others, yeah. but it's 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 a significant issue. It's just the level of anger, I think, that it's creating at the moment. Mm, and mm. Um, I mean, there's a really interesting. So the chap I said whose son locked him. I love that story. Locked him in the bedroom, you know, the house, and said, "You need to sort your life out, um, or sort the planet out." Yeah. Um, they did a brilliant piece of research which said if you ask people in Florida um, to sign a petition about getting to net zero, um, five more, five times more people will sign a, the petition if you say, do you want to save Florida from the floods than if you go, do you want to get to net zero? So the same thing. So it's five times cheaper, he was saying, to, um, you know, and it's something ridiculous, like $12 a person to get mm. those people um, in, engaged in it. So your point about thinking about climate as a market as we should be marketing mm. it much much better mm. and we've completely mm. missed the track i mean in the financial services world whether it's decarbonization you know trans temperature alignment i mean none of it makes any sense to anyone or even yeah. us I think, yeah, yeah. so yeah. we've got to do something haven't we? we've got to talk about climate a lot better yeah i think and we lost we lost so much time mm. by overcomplicating it and by yeah. making it feel sort of you know it's over there it's a bit scientific mm. and, and you know no one really understood it, mm. and and so I, I agree with all these all these, you know, Apple do it so well. Mm. You know, <laughs> they bring out a product that's a super complex product yeah. and make it super simple for yeah. people to get and yeah. pack it in a nice box and everyone <laughs> wants to pay a fortune for it. And that's exactly the job with climate change is, you know, put it in a lovely box, wrap it in a bow, make everybody want to buy one or have one or own it or be yeah. part of it, and that journey becomes easier. And mm. and uh, you know. It's, you know, we need the best brand people mm. in the world yeah. sat down around the table trying mm. to work out. So if there's any, if there's any like big ad execs listening, <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's what you we know, need let's you get, to do. Yeah, let's get, let's get around the table. Brilliant. Love it. So, um, well, it's been really brilliant talking to you. We're going to finish um, and wrap up. But I called this podcast Practical Philanthropy for a yeah. reason, which is... <laughs> So I always ask my guests for some practical guidance that people can just take away. So what, what would you like to end with? The journey from entrepreneur to philanthropy, I think for most entrepreneurs feels a very natural one, mm. but it's sort of like any path mm -hmm. fraught with, you know, bumps and rocks mm. and things like that. And so I think my advice would be find um, a group of people that you 
you trust mm. to bounce ideas off and work with. And philanthropy, you know, obviously tons of people need support and, mm. and access to capital. Yeah. So there's no shortage in yeah. places where philanthropy can go. But I think it's a long road mm. and it takes a huge amount of energy. And I think you've got to feel that it's sustainable for you as an individual. Yeah. Um, and that's why if you become public, it's then quite a lot mm. of, you know, mm. uh, I've got to go out, I've got to do this, yes. I've got to go and do this. So, yeah. so I think that's the thing is just be quite decisive about what it is you en- you want to be doing over five, mm. ten years or something. And I would look at it as on a five or ten year horizon. Yeah. Um, but like I have to say also... like growing a business. Yeah, like it's yeah. like growing a business. Mm. And I, But I have to say it's the most rewarding thing mm. um, I've ever done. Mm. And then in terms of, in terms of the ocean, um, you know, I think that the, I guess my, my realisation when I looked at ocean conservation was that it was, it was hugely fragmented. Mm. And so I solved, in my mind, I was That's looking at it as a business sort of yeah. going, as a business, you would, you, you know, you would build the go compare yeah. type <laughs> <laughs> or you switch type model. Yeah. And give people a one yeah. destination where they mm. can back out back all the charities, yeah. you know, through a single donation. And I, I think that's the essence of what all philanthropy uh, and all initiatives around climate mm. change need to try and do is just work. What is the simplest yeah. point of access? Um, because mm. the complexity of it is beyond most of us. Yeah. Um, Brilliant. Yeah. I really enjoyed speaking to Jasper today. What shone through for me is you can really hear and see the entrepreneur in him reflected in his philanthropy. And by that, I mean that willingness to take risk, to back new people and new ideas and projects, and to bring the classic problem-solving skills entrepreneurs naturally have to the table. Instead of thinking about competing for a fraction of an even tinier fraction of funding, Jasper is focused on growing the amount of capital that goes towards ocean philanthropy by creating, as he puts it, the go compare of the philanthropy world. And it's not often that we get such a direct call to action from a podcast guest, but hey, you never know if there really are any big ad execs out there. Let's get you around the table to work out how we can market the climate crisis in a way that can bring everyone along. And finally, I couldn't resist playing the excerpt from Outrage and Optimism, one of my favourite climate podcasts. Christiana Figuera's anecdote about the blue marble really stuck with me. Perhaps we all need to carry one to constantly remind us of how vital the oceans are to us all. Alternatively, remember, every second breath you take has been gifted to you by the ocean. And we are coming up to our final episode of this Practical Philanthropy series. And next time we are shifting our focus back to people, 51% of people in fact, as we explore the challenges that face women and girls here in the UK. Until then, you can reach me at lynn.tomlinson at casanovecapital.com. Thank you very much to our audience for listening and a huge thank you to my editor-in-chief, Laura Keeble of Casanova Capital and Mike Green of Schroeder's Creative who turn our ruminations into this hopefully inspiring podcast.